0: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless
1: dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello, fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Hi, I'm Mel, and I'm Trish, and this is the Don't Give a 50 podcast. Let's make getting old the new gold, as you say. I like that. I like that one too. That was mine. (laughs) that was mine. Hi, 50-ishers. It's Mel and Trish. Welcome to this week's episode of Don't Give a 50, a podcast for midlife women who dare to be awesome and just don't give a 50 like us. Special shout-out this week to Lorraine Lewis who left a lovely message on our Facebook. She said, love it, girls. Can't wait to listen. I love the support for us beautiful second half of the century women. <laughs> Thank you. Quite like that, Trish. I love that too. Second and, Lorraine, mile.
3: I must apologise because Mel and I aren't great on Facebook and I literally scrolled down and found that. I think it was left a little while ago. Oh, so, okay.
2: Yeah. yeah, thanks, Lorraine. Sorry. And and I'm hopeless. At least you get on Facebook, Trish. Yes. I'm not good with Facebook anyway, So thanks, Lorraine. We would so love and appreciate it if you could spread even more love and leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app as well as share our podcast with a friend. We'll upload a how-to on the socials this week. Hmm. You reckon that's going to happen, Trish? (laughs) Yes, because I'm going to get our gorgeous
3: friend Kim O'Gorman, if you're listening, to
2: help (laughs) me with it. She's our technical guru. Oh, my yes. God, I love you. Mm. Um, Trish wrote that and line 50 issues. Trish wrote that line. So let's see how that happens. Anyway. He's
3: we'll say that because she knows that I'm very good with intentions and <laughs> very poor on follow-through.
2: <laughs> As just keep. Oh no, yes, she okay. does with both of us. So as mentioned, ratings and reviews aren't entirely for our ego, but actually for the stats. Because basically, stats help keep this potty going and keep the very important conversations going and that need to be had and heard. Absolutely. And
3: it's nice to know we're doing good things. Yeah, <laughs>
2: it's nice to get some feedback. That imposter syndrome does creep in. Oh, it does. Mm. I it does. I try and catch it. We try and catch it, but it does sneak its way in every now and then. So today we are excited. So excited. To have an absolute powerhouse of positivity and success in this studio with us, the gorgeous Karen Smith. Karen is a dynamic leader, a motivator, and a survivor who inspires transformation and a new way of thinking. She is an author, trainer, and well known as one of Australia's most dynamic motivational speakers. Speakers. having spoken for groups from twenty to twenty thousand, Karen leaves her audience feeling inspired to take action and make positive changes in their life, their business and their relationships. As a survivor of the 2002 Bali bombings, along with many other challenges, which include the suicide of her partner and the personal impact of the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami on her family, Karen's comprehension of value, time, creativity and the meaning of life charges her presentations with passion, credibility and a deep and genuine commitment to extraordinary achievements for people. Her unique training program, Programs and motivational speaking events have transformed the lives of thousands who have now found their voices and their own sense of purpose and success through her message. Just extraordinary. Karen is beyond remarkable, and we're so excited to have her all to ourselves in the studio with us today to share her with all of you. A warm welcome to Don't Give a 50. Incredible, Karen.
4: Oh, thank you for having me. What an intro. Is it bizarre? It's bizarre. Mm. I'm sitting here and I'm feeling very humbled going, no, that's not me. That that sounds really good. Yeah, but it is. It (laughs) is. It's It's incredible. all of you. It's
2: your story. It's Mm. you. And so many of our guests have said the same thing after listening to their own bio. So it's their Mm. own life story and they think, that sounds actually really quite (laughs) impressive. I can't believe that's me. Yeah, I I think a lot of time we don't stop and take
3: stock of what we have Mm -hmm. achieved.
2: Mm, I tell you what, it's quite and extraordinary. You,
3: my gorgeous lady, have achieved so much. Yeah, well, I yeah, yes.
2: yeah. I, I'm excited about today's mm-hmm. chat. There's a few things we want to deep dive on. Yes. Now I must confess, I'm a little starstruck because mm, I'll I was. It. Yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm a giddy girl, giddy girl, fan. So, I started listening to podcasts. Years ago and the first one I listened to was the Up For A Chat, which of course was you, the beautiful Cindy O'Meara and Divine Kim Morrison who we've both had as guests and who we've just now they're dear friends or they don't have a choice because we've (laughs) just embraced them and won't let them go. (laughs) Yeah. And that kind of, it really kept me company in those times because I was out on the farm with a young family. So quite lonely. So that female companionship. So I just know that power of Mm. connectivity. And then I came and did one of your seminars at the (laughs) Maroochidor RSL with Kim and Cindy. What were they called? I remember
4: those. So they were called Awaken the Change Within. Yes, yes. And Kim, Cindy and I used to do two or three of those a year. And we would always have... Somewhere between eighty and a hundred people in the room, and it was a two or a three yeah, day two days, event yeah. where we would really dive deeper into each of our specialties. Yeah, because it was it's brilliant. That was the part that made it work so beautifully. I think is that we are so different and we have such different backgrounds and we have such very different messages and mm. the ways that we see the world are so you know diverse mm. yet the love and the respect and the connection and the lifelong devotion to each other it, it's it's unspoken. It's just it's just automatically yeah. there, and I think that that always came across on the stage when the three of us were together. Was even though we were very different people and we had very different messages, yep. we all actually gave a fifty about. <laughs> The people that were in the room and about each other and there was always a lot of love and you could feel it. it was. It was so beautiful. And I think that that what you all do just complements each other
3: so much. It's like you Mm. can't have one part right without the other other part. Totally. Yeah, Mm.
4: it was
2: just awesome. And it's okay to be different from each other. I think then you're bringing, uh, you know, three really different sort of energies and strengths
4: Mm. I think into all the
3: same, it's just boring too. That's why we've got to yeah. remain curious. Yes, yeah. We don't yeah. want to be boring. <laughs>
2: and I must say that I don't know.
3: No, I should never be boring. I'm a
2: fear of being boring.
3: <laughs> Becoming Aww. boring. And I have also watched some of your Karen's Couches oh. episodes. So for those of you who don't know Karen, she also has – is it a YouTube show? Or is it on your it's, website? It's That's where the, I find them. Yeah. yeah, it's
4: on the website karenscouch.com.au. I mean, she should be Oprah basically. Oh,
3: But the one in particular with Byron Katie because I quite often mention Byron Katie on the podcast and I have read her book and I can't even imagine speaking one-on-one with her. So that must have been amazing.
4: I have been very blessed with some of the people that I've done podcasts and shows with and another one that – another two that really stand out for me is Bruce Lipton and also Brandon Bays. They were amazing shows to – be so connected and so close to them. And the magic of it is, you know, you have to build a relationship with them before the show. Mm. So for three or four weeks before the show I was building relationships with them. So now I do call them friends. Like, oh, <laughs> so cool. I don't know if I can get away with it, but I go there. You can be our friend. I mean, we're you know, kind of <laughs> in a
3: different realm, but
2: <laughs> we'll get there, Trish. Okay. We'll get there. Yeah.
3: So, so excited to have you here. I've heard you tell your story and I could listen to it a million times, but for the listeners, for our 50s tribe and for Mel, I would love, I think, to hand it over to you to tell that story because I don't think that I or Mel could do Mm. it justice and the questions that we ask you may not do it justice. So I think that we might just
4: hand it over to you. So for me, I'm 52 now. Welcome mm-hmm. to the 50s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's all a bit fabulous, really. Yeah. Um, so for me, you know, I had a really amazing childhood, a really great family growing up. I'm the youngest of three. Nothing nothing major ever happened in my life. And being the youngest, I was always very sheltered and protected. You know, like if anybody wanted to get to me, they had to go through my mum, my dad, my brother and my sister before they got to me, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always felt very safe and secure and the real journey for me began when I was 30, when my partner that I had been with, Greg, we'd been together for eight years and he made movies and commercials. So he worked on movies like The Matrix and Jean-Claude's Imp- uh, Imp- um, Bloodsport and Mission Impossible, that was on the top of my tongue, and mm-hmm. The Matrix. So that would have been – Oh, I mean, what a life. Yeah. I mean, what a life. The premieres and the red carpet events that we went to, I met Tom Jones and Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz, you know. Wow. it was an amazing life. Oh, my gosh. I've just got goosebumps. That's, yeah, that's pretty yeah. cool. It's so cool. Mm. It's so cool. And to mm. be able to be behind the scenes on set of making The Matrix, he would often let me come in and cool. um, stand behind the scenes and watch yeah. And the producers. And I remember Tom Cruise looking at me thinking, what's she doing here? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I tried to look very small and inconspicuous but it was it was an amazing life but it came at a price because Greg would be away for 3 to 4 months at a time yeah and he would make three or four movies a year yeah so depending mm, on a, it's a lot yes, it's, it's a, lot a lot on a relationship yeah. and in the beginning i really struggled with that because i'm a quality time person but over time i got used to it but what happened was always challenging when he would come home from making a movie because we would have to find a way to reconnect with each other. Absolutely, that that is tough, tough, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Because you find your own space. Of course you do. And then they come home and now you got to include them back again, you know. That's mm. right. But he went away to make a movie called Kangaroo Jack and do oh, you remember that movie? You, you Jackman? Do you? No, no, no. Not maybe you. I don't. No, no, don't. no, that's not the one. And in fact, it wasn't a terrib- pop- terribly popular movie, no. so I'd be surprised if you. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking of another one with you, Jackman,
3: but clearly it wasn't. It. But he was. See, away. that's why I'm letting you speak.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so I just keep quiet. Look, it's not a bad idea.
3: <laughs> you are the professional. Sometimes what I say doesn't come out proper.
4: <laughs> proper like? Good and proper. Good and proper. But he was away. So on Kangaroo Jack, he was in Alice Springs for nine weeks. And it felt like a really, really long stint that time. And he'd been away for eight or nine weeks before, but I don't know what it was this time round, but it felt like it was a really long period. And when he came home, I'd had the dogs brushed and fluffed and I had myself brushed and fluffed. And I had the house <laughs> brushed and fluffed. You know, I had everything done beautifully. And he walked in the door and literally walked straight past me and went in to have a shower. And I followed in behind him. Wanting to at least just say hello, you know,
1: yeah.
4: mm. and instantly my alarm bells went off, and I thought he's been cheating on me. He's yeah. completely unplugged. So mm. while he was in the shower, I started rifling through his bags, yes. looking for evidence. Because yeah. that's that intuition. Isn't oh, it? we just that know just, the, the energy is different. And my mum taught me to snoop like a champion. Good oh, job. Oh, Mom. Okay. oh, yeah. My Might mum taught me everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So I. Didn't find anything and then the next day, by the time I woke up, he'd already gone. He came home late and then the next day, he'd already gone to work. So, there was no reconnecting, conversating, nothing. So, he's communicating nothing to you oh, verbally. No. So, a nothing. lot of non-
2: non-verbal communication happening but…
4: Nothing. Nothing verbal. Okay. No. And… I really didn't understand what was happening because Mm. when he – we had agreed that when he came home, I would – because I was working 16 hours a day. I was general manager for one of the largest recruitment firms in Sydney Mm. and I was going to give up work, fall pregnant, rebuild our house, buy a Prado and, you know, live happily ever after and that was our plan. Right. So when he came home and was so unplugged, I really felt like I was watching this beautiful dream that I'd hung on to slip through my fingers and you know when you feel like you've met the one. Mm. At the time, I, I felt like like mm. how is this? No, yeah. this can't be. This can't be right. Yep. And I couldn't find any rhyme or reason for why it was happening because you know by three or four weeks in, my experience in our relationship is that we would have all reconnected yeah. and everything would have been mm. fine again. You know. Yep. It wasn't until about the nine week mark that we agreed we would go and see a counselor because we were just not getting anywhere. Right. And we saw the counsellor individually, and while the counsellor really was very supportive in terms of our childhood issues, she really didn't do too much in terms of bringing us back together. And then it was about the 12-week mark. I was down to a size four. My mm. hair was falling out. I was covered in rashes. Oh, and okay. my best friend Jody said to me, Kazza, you, you, you have to have a break. You can't keep putting yourself through this. Mm. Let's go to Fiji. Let's go to Fiji for a couple of days. Just give you a bit of a break. So that was on the Friday. And then... I stayed at Jody's place a couple of nights a week, um, just to give Greg a bit of a break and some time, because I was—I felt like I was such an intrusion on his space but I wasn't willing to walk away mm. because he was the love of my life. And you had yeah. so much invested. Oh, I just yeah. I couldn't. I just yeah. I couldn't do it. And I wanted to so badly because I'd built this wall around my heart to protect myself from the constant onslaught because I'm incredibly mm. soft and this onslaught of suffering, you know, that I was experiencing. I wanted to leave and I befriended a, a guy that I met at a nightclub and he was so comforting. He was so kind. And so sweet that to be able to have somebody that I could unload all of my own emotional mm. baggage onto, it must have been trauma for him. But it was mm, yeah, mm. <laughs> but it was so nice to actually have somebody that was caring. But anyway, Jody and yeah. I decided that we were going to go to Fiji, and I told Greg on the Friday, and he wasn't excited about it. And then I stayed at Jody's place on the Sunday night. On the Monday morning, I woke up and my phone had gone flat, so I plugged it in and there was a voicemail message from Greg. And I gave the phone to Jodie and said, listen to this. Like, what do you think of this? She said, Kazza, get in the car. We'll just go around to your house. And literally my house was just around the corner. When we got to the house, I was met in the driveway by two police officers who said, are you Karen Smith? And I said, I am. And my first inclination was, you know, Greg's had a fight. He's been in a fight somewhere. Why are the cops Mm, at my house? Why are they in my house? Sure. And then the police officer handed me a CD, Kylie Minogue's Can't Get You Out of My Head. And he handed me the CD and he said, Karen, he said, Greg committed suicide last night. Oh, Karen. Mm. And he said, wow. Sorry, guys. Oh, Oh, no. 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 Not Uh, at all. Sometimes it catches me. Yeah, of course. But he handed me the CD and he said that the neighbour's father had committed suicide the same way. His car started at 8.30 in the night yep. and at 8.30 the next morning the car was still on idle. Mm. And so the neighbour knew that that was what it was. So he called the police and the police arrived and we actually passed the ambulance going to, to the, the house. the house and obviously you don't – No, well you, like, you, you we didn't, didn't even know, put two and two together. No, of, of course. God. It wasn't even – not even in my frame of reference that that could even be a possibility. Right. So the police officer gave me the CD and he told me what had happened and he said, so this was – playing on repeat in Greg's car while he was, you know, taking his life. He said, so it was about you, obviously. And as he gave me the CD and told me that, he gave me the instructions on how to feel about this. Because, you know, you go to school and you live a normal life, but nobody actually tells you how to compartmentalize an emotional experience of that magnitude. You don't really know what to do with it. So the police officer told me that it was my fault and I took it on and I agreed because I had not seen Greg suffering. I was so caught up in my own pain and my own loss of what I thought we had Mm. that I never saw that he was really suffering. And because I had built this wall around my heart, I had withdrawn, that was the reason that Greg gave in his voicemail message was that because I had taken my distance and he felt that the relationship was coming to an end that he couldn't live with it and that he was gonna you know he was exiting and that he would watch me every day for the rest of my life from above so
2: he didn't express any of his pain to you I had no on, idea mm. I mean there were a
4: couple because of occasions you were trying. Desperately to
3: hold on to it and fix it as well. Yeah, I was. And he he,
2: yes. he didn't understand that you weren't trying to exit the relationship. Oh no, that did. it wasn't the end. No, okay. I think well, that's, so I, that's. I think mean, over
4: time that's mental health, isn't it? Well, I think over time, you know, by this stage we were fourteen weeks past his return from yeah, Alice Springs. Um, Alice Springs, and over time, I had become more distant. So I had become mm. a little bit more cold, of course, and I had because- been more protective of myself because everything yes. he did hurt me. Yes, mm. yes. And then he would have moments where he would feel, "Oh my God, what have I done?" And then, of course, I would run straight to the plate, straight to the house, and straight into his arms, and we would spend the night together. And then the next morning, it would be back to where it was before, and it was a bit of a roller coaster for a good, I don't know, maybe five weeks. It was. Six. Weeks. I. I. You know. I've lost track of time with it all. But it was this roller coaster of come to me, get away from me, come to mm. me, get away from me. And I think my natural mechanism for self preservation is to stand back and observe.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. And as much as my intentions were very clear to be with him and to have him be my life, I could see that it wasn't enough. I could mm. see that. He was – and I just put it down to the fact that there was someone else. I just – Yeah, you know, and that's kind of – sorry, Mel, but that's – that there was never any evidence of it. No. Yeah. Not ever. Because he's
3: still – there must be still a question going, was there some sort of guilt-driven factor that that changed, that when he came home his energy was different?
2: That's what I was going to ask. Mm. Like I'm curious about did you ever – like since the event, have you ever discovered what it was, like – this dramatic change in him at the time of coming home from Alice Springs, where he just walked past you and and that was the first sign for you that something was wrong because you had this routine and this pattern of mm. how you reconnected. You went through the stages of reconnecting when he was away for such long periods of time. So mm. did you ever reveal, like was there an incident in Alice Springs? Or was it just his mental health unraveling at that time?
4: Or so I would never it? I would never say Greg had mental health issues. As still yeah, to okay. day, I would yep. never yep. say that he had mental health issues because he Mm -hmm. didn't, Yep. Yeah. he was this tower of strength. He was a strong and a silent man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When he was younger, I know that just from conversations with his mum, we don't have a relationship now, but when we were together, I remember having conversations with his mum about him potentially having some medication for um, attention. Mm -hmm. But for me, in my eight years that I was with him, probably ten years that I knew him, there was never any evidence
3: of him. Anything. Any of that crap, yeah. like there was yeah. just and none see, of that. That, that right. would, that would, that would start to show way before. Well, then. you'd think, wouldn't mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, so an no expert, answers but there, but no, really. No, that's yeah. true. But
4: no. you know, the the movie industry, it's an interesting industry because everything is fake. Mm-hmm. and whatever you see in the movies it's built and it's fake and it's polystyrene and it's and it's painted so it's not real mm-hmm. and they work really long hours so they land up then taking medications to help them stay mm-hmm. awake and medications yes. to help
3: them go to sleep and especially at that time too cuz was that kind of 80s early 80s 90s No, like, 2000s oh 2000 yeah,
4: 2001 of course it is sorry yeah 2001 yeah well that was it was still rife then Oh, it probably still it would, is now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, it's they would work from 2 a.m. in the morning till 2 a.m. the next morning. Yes. And then start six hours or eight hours later. They'd be paid extremely well, but it's just the nature of the industry. Yes. And it's occurring. And physical toll. It's occurring for everybody. So they right. do whatever yes. they have to do, you know? Yes. And so that's really the only thing that I could ever put it down to is that potentially, you know, he may have been off kilter. Yes. But yes. there's yep. th- there's no evidence of that. Even the autopsy showed there was no evidence of any drugs in his system. Mm-hmm. So I become at a bit of a loss yeah. to give an explanation. Mm-hmm. And I, when he took his life, I then started to go through my own experience of depression because of the responsibility and the guilt that I felt. Of course. I'd look at his friends, I'd look at his family, and I couldn't bear what I had done to them because Greg had told me that he'd killed himself because of me and I believed him because I didn't see it coming. So I feel like I felt like I really didn't deserve to be here. I really felt that I had a price to pay for what I had done. And when the days, the weeks and the months rolled by, I became more and more unplugged and disassociated from myself because I couldn't stand the skin bag I was living in. It made me sick to look at myself in the mirror. I could not bear the sound of my voice. And when you catch a glimpse of yourself walking past a shop window yeah. sometimes, oh, I just felt like I could I, I, I could throw myself onto the street. Yeah. I hated what I saw. And this slippery slope became, well, it became slipperier, so much so that in my own mind, I'd really disassociated from reality and my own reality. And I'd made the decision that I would take my own life. And that would serve a number of purposes. I would pay my price for taking Greg's life. I would be back in my rightful place with him, thank God. And his family wouldn't have to be inflicted by my presence. And my family wouldn't have to watch me being the walking dead because it's I wasn't anything more than that. All I wanted was a way out. And on the 12-month anniversary of Greg's passing, I made a decision that when that day came around, that that would be the day that I would take my life. But I wouldn't take my life here. I wanted to go to Bali. I wanted to go somewhere where no one would find me that I knew and loved. And there would just be a note left behind. And it was the 12th of October 2002 that I flew out of Australia to Bali. And Jodie and another girlfriend, Charmaine, last minute, had decided that they were gonna to come too. Jodie knew how depressed I was because I was actually living with her. Right. And we boarded the plane on the 12th and we landed at about two o'clock that day. And she just thought, you know, she didn't think that I was suicidal, but she knew that I needed help. Yeah. She yeah. didn't want you to be there. At she didn't that want me to be there alone. by myself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, the best friend, the best yeah. soul sister right there. So we went and had a swim, went to the Sairi Club that night. And in my mind, so Greg's anniversary was the 14th of October. So on the 14th of October, I was heading up to Ubud by myself and Jody knew or she knows me very well that I'm quite an independent person and when I'm in pain, I do go away to lick my wounds and then I come back and I'm fine, but I need mm. the space to go away.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So she, I was going to Ubud on the, on the 14th and – the night of the 12th, we were at the Sari Club. I was actually having fun. I really had resigned myself to what my fate was going to become on the 14th. Everything was laid out and planned, and I was I, I was at so much peace yeah. with my decision because mm-hmm. I had already left the building. And it was almost a relief. Yeah. And then it was about 11:30 that night a young guy grabbed me and pulled me onto the dance floor. As he pulled me onto the dance floor, Jodie and I remember seeing Jodie and Charmaine's faces as they were giggling. But then the next minute I woke up and there was arms across my body. Oh, my gosh. There was a hand across my face. I could see this fellow. He had really big Afro hair. His hair was kind of around my torso and there were people lying across my legs and no one was moving. And I remember hearing in my mind that I I, I needed to get out. I needed to get out because I could feel this searing heat coming through. And so I squirmed my way out on my back and then when I finally found a clearing to be able to stand, I looked up to see what I could see and everything was just ablaze. And people were running and they were screaming and it was dark. And as I'm yelling out for Jodie and Charmaine, I could feel the hair on my face starting to burn. You know, that smell, I could yes. smell that smell. So yeah. I turned my face and saw that at the back of the club there was this really big man standing there. And I, 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 as I look at him, I imagine him now, I, I swear he has wings, but he was collecting all of the girls, especially the smaller ones, and pushing us through this hole that had been blown in the wall wow. at the back of the club. But what he didn't realise was that that bomb didn't just take out the sari club. It actually took out four or five blocks. Yeah. So when he pushed us through the hole, he pushed us into flames. And the girls that were wearing synthetics, their clothes all stuck to them. And those were the really tragic burn victims that you guys saw. But those Mm -hmm. of us that had singlets or that were in cotton cotton and denim, we were okay. And I was in a cotton singlet and a denim skirt. So it was fortunate that we were able to expel our clothes quickly without them sticking to us. We ran, I ran for my life. And I remember f- thinking to myself, please don't let me run under a brick wall. I just don't want to run into a brick wall. Keep the path clear. Keep the path clear is what I had in my mind. And I could feel this searing on my shoulder blades and I'm screaming, ouch, ouch. And, it, you know, like this, a, whole, a whole world occurred in that instance of time in my mind where I laughed at myself and said, no one's listening to you. Mm. Just run, for God's sake. Stop (laughs) complaining about life. (laughs) Run. (laughs) And then the next thing I run into this giant brick brick wall and I've been hypnotized five times. I'm going in for my sixth time probably in about two or three weeks to see, remember how I got up to the The top of that wall but there's no memories there. All I remember is standing on top of the wall and the wall would have been 10 foot tall easily. How did you get up? I don't know. I don't know. There was no footholds or hand holes. It was just a brick wall. But I remember standing on top of it. So it was almost like from the ground to the top I wasn't there and then when I was on the top I was totally there. And then looking down, I then had to calculate how I was going to jump this 10 foot wall being a 5 foot 2 person and I saw these boxes, these timber boxes that they carry fruit in, yes. all scrumpled on the floor. and I thought, okay, I'm going to jump into that and whatever damage happens happens. So I jumped into the the boxes, they broke my fall, they broke my fingers, but I didn't feel a thing. Mm. And I ripped apart as as and they caught my legs. and as I ripped those boxes apart to free myself, it was like I was using it was ripping cardboard. Wow! I just had this superhuman strength that was beyond anything and I remember being amazed by myself and I was still underground. And with broken fingers, you're ripping those. Yeah. 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 Wow.
2: Were you by yourself?
4: I was. I was. But I remember there was a one girl who somehow must have gotten in there with me Yeah. and she was trying to climb up to the street level and there was a drainage grate that had fallen in. It was acting like a stepladder. I mean, you know, go yeah. figure how that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. But she couldn't quite get her foothold on that stepladder and it took me four or five attempts to try and help her to get her foot on it and she just couldn't get it. And in the end, I just said to her, you know, I said, I really can't help you anymore. You're going to have to find your own way. Mm. And so then I climbed up the stepladder and eventually I was picked up by an Australian man who took me to... um, So at that stage, you're back out on the road? I'm back out on the road. Sorry, I imagine it would have been chaotic. Oh, no, no. It was. It was mayhem, the screams, the Mm. moaning, the sights never articulate. Words are completely bankrupt. Of Mm. course. There was a woman. I was taken into an open-air bar by a Balinese man and he said, sit, sit, sit and the moans of the other people that were in that bar it was too much i couldn't i couldn't bear it so i walked out and there was this woman sitting on the side of the street and she was completely naked and completely charred like and her right her left arm was hanging by a thread and i could see like and we all th- there was this incredible sense of oneness that instantly occurred where we could feel and experience each other in the most profound way and when i sat with her There was no fear. There was no nothing. I didn't say anything to her. I just sat with her. She took a breath. Her arm fell off and um, then she fell off to the side and passed away. And I know that this is sounding very horrific and I can promise you the sight of it was absolutely horrific. You, you You can never imagine it. But the sensation that was present was beyond anything I have ever experienced before or since in that... Nobody was scared of anybody. We all came together in the most incredibly powerful way. We all knew each other. We all were one. We could feel each other's heartbeat. I remember sitting in the back of a car A Balinese man put me in the back of a four-wheel drive and said, hospital, hospital. And for me, I didn't feel like there was anything wrong with me at all. In fact, I felt like I was God Almighty himself. I felt that inside. Mm. And the back of this four-wheel drive with these couple and she was naked and he had his clothes on. And I put my hands on their arms and I said, it's okay. I'm here and I'm going to look after us all. You don't have to worry about another thing. Everybody's going to be safe. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) And then... I didn't want to stay in that car because I felt trapped. So I kicked the door open, broke the hinges off the tailgate of a like a, a Prado-type thing. Wow. Kicked the door open like it was nothing. Like I could have just flicked it and it would yeah. have opened and mm-hmm. it was nothing. I grabbed this couple. We walked up a side street and I remember standing on the street feeling the fish in the ocean. I could feel the beat of the planet. I could feel the stars In, like, I could almost feel the twinkle of the stars. I could feel absolutely everything. It was gigantic. It was, oh, it was the most extraordinarily familiar and magical moment. I, I, again, words are just completely bankrupt, but I could feel everybody's heartbeats. I could feel the rhythm of the, of the, of the the water underneath the earth, I could feel everything. It was like it was all in me. It was unbelievable. And then a Australian guy drove by on his moped and snapped me out of my euphoria mm. <laughs> and put me on the back of his moped and just said to me, darling, you're in a bit of strife. You're gonna need to get to hospital. Yeah. Look at you. And it was great to hear an Aussie yobbo, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I wrapped my arms around his giant beer belly and he – raced me to the hospital or a medical center where there it was just full. There was people dying everywhere. It was, it was massive. Everybody was burnt. The groaning and the screaming was the worst. They put me on the floor between this man's legs who passed away. And then they gave me six drips in my arms. And I sat for three hours as my head, which I didn't realize at the time, was completely crushed. And... Eventually they put me on the table and an Australian federal police officer, Frank Morgan, picked me up and put me on the table and he goes, G'day, darling. Oh sweet! <laughs> oh, oh in his blue trucky singlet. Oh, <gasps> yeah, no, the Jackie house. Hello.
2: <laughs> was he there on holidays? Yeah. Is it okay. Yeah,
4: he'd been stationed in East Timor, and there was a whole lot of them that had come to Bali for a holiday or a break.
2: So they almost went into like work mode. Totally like full work mm-hmm. mode. One hundred percent. Yeah, they're there to try and they yeah. find the Australians and yeah and them. another all. bizarre synchronicity of oh. the whole. Can you believe it? Yeah. Wow.
4: <clears throat> you know? well,
2: so what? So what were your injuries?
4: I had um. a depressed skull fracture. When Frank put me on the table, there was one American doctor there on holidays who oh. was seeing to everybody and he came and cleaned up the wound as best he could and then he inserted 38 staples from the top of my head to just down below my ear. I never felt a thing. There was no anaesthetic, of course, but I never felt a thing. I heard it, but I never felt anything. But Frank was amazing. He said to me, you know, you're safe now, sweetheart. We've got you. You're going to be all right. Oh. Oh God, sweetheart! Oh I my God! God. I love Aussies. I love them. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I love him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love him.
4: <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I'm give honestly, him a big hug. Yeah, Jeepers. Yeah. Oh, what a man! What a, what a man! What a guy! And guns. Big guns. Big guns, oh. Pick yeah. me up off the floor by now himself. Now I've got
3: that song, What a Man, What a Man, man What a, a Mighty man. man going in my head. Yeah, yeah, He's and like
2: he, the hero in a in a film, isn't he? He's
3: Visualising like this whole scene, it's now slowed down and he's walking yes, into that soundtrack. There he is. <laughs> there yeah. he is,
4: but in a blue truckie singlet. Yeah. yeah. And blue stubbies. Yeah. Oh, my God, <laughs> nice. I love the
2: stubbies. That's my
3: husband's leisure wear. Must the wear stubbies.
2: But I, he's probably picked up like <laughs> multiple other men and women, like Australian men and women, oh. who were there you know
4: terribly injured he would have just been oh he was just backwards he and was forwards. Just, yeah 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 he He's was on duty he was on duty yeah. and he i believe because i did actually connect with him a few years back but i believe he just worked straight they all just worked straight for five or six days yeah just saving people who were injured and then helping finding the people who'd been burned and passed away because all the families then flew in of course to try and find their children Yes. So and their partners and so on. So yes. yeah, they just worked tirelessly. <clears throat> so so much for the holiday for them. There wasn't that wasn't the case. But you know, I was given the thirty-eight staples, taken to another private hospital where I was able to make contact with my family. <sighs> there was a phone there. And the doctors wanted to operate on me. They said that I had six hours to live because of the nature of the injury that I had. But I shared six needles with eight people that day. <laughs> and seeing the way that the Balinese Handle the hygiene. They just didn't know how. Well, mm. I mean, who does? No. They didn't have the facilities to be able to handle something like that. So I refused, and I made sure that I got an ambulance to the airport to board a plane that I knew that Qantas had put on because my family had told mm. me that was flying out at ten thirty that night. So they told me at seven o'clock in the mon- on the morning on the Sunday that I. Had about six hours to live, so technically by one o'clock I should have passed away. But ten thirty that night I boarded the plane, um, and then I flew for six and a half hours back to Sydney where I was operated on at the Royal North Shore Hospital.
2: Do you think that decision to Mm. not Mm. undergo the operation with the six hours to live, Mm. was that based mostly on the hygiene factor and your concerns about hygiene or was it a gut feeling that was saying to you, I have just got to get
4: home? Do you know there's something about the human instinct for survival that is beyond human and from first-hand experience I can 100% speak to that. Of course what made the decisions and what was present within my skin bag was the superhuman from the moment that bomb blast went off yep. to 6 months after I arrived home yep mm. the me that's sitting here in front of you now i'm the effect of that yes but the me that was there then i can and i can feel it and i and i know it was not this version of me, it was the one who knows. It, and I knew there was not even a question, there was not even a doubt, there was not even That's an option. Good. I knew profoundly what I was doing every step of the way and I just followed it. I'm glad it's you like had
2: that, no doubts. None. Do you know, if you'd been second-guessing yourself at that point, that would have been mm. really destabilising, wouldn't it? Like yeah. it's just good that there were no doubts. Like, no, no, I'm going home, I'm getting on that plane and I'm out of here.
3: Yeah. It's almost like the body's that innate ability – for just mm. your brain at that stage to go, no, I need to take over. Yeah. this needs to happen. Yeah, that clarity.
4: Oh, I mean, the level of focus that I had on keeping myself alive mm. and strength wow. was huge. And strength, mm, shit. Yeah. I, oh, whoops, sorry. Oh no, we no, swear we all said all the time. Oh, do we?
2: <laughs> yeah. <Exactly. laughs> 50.
3: <laughs> Sometimes I don't even say 50. Uh, Karen, yeah. you spoke earlier of that euphoria, like feeling the water, the stars, everything. Mm. Have you ever questioned, my gosh, was I on the cusp of death? Like, is that that
4: feeling at that stage? Many times. Mm. Yeah. Many, 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 I'm many, many so times. I'm so glad it wasn't. Oh, so mm. am I. Mm. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm never. That's not an answer I'm ever going to know. So well, it
2: sounds it sounds like that near death experience, don't you? So Trish and I cannot grasp what you went through because we've never no had an experience remotely similar to that. Yeah, you know, we've both had loss and and grief and some tragedy and things like that, but that experience that you have just recounted, we can't relate to that. And I'm glad. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So no, sorry. So my point to that is, you know, that, that experience that you had there, being yeah. able to feel the fish and the, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. It is, I think it's those near death experiences. Mm. That's the only way I can process it in my mind that we mm. can't understand because, okay. because it was you, it was your experience and we weren't mm. there. And it's just too, div- it's too profound.
4: It's so profound. You can
2: describe it. Yeah. But, you know. The words are inadequate yeah, again. The, yeah, the words absolutely. are inadequate. Mm-hmm. I agree. That totes. Totes. Yeah, it's almost totes. like where you know,
3: at that stage. <laughs> mm. You were beyond mere mortal. You know, you were in, sure. a, in a realm that was just. For sure. The adrenaline, the clarity, the everything was mm-hmm. just beyond
4: mere mortal. Oh, the adrenaline would have been out of control. Absolutely. And that never changed. Yeah. Like well, not never changed. It took six months yes. to come down from mm-hmm. that. So yeah. there was this intense sense of grief when I come when I got home, because Jody and Charmaine never made it home. Yeah, they did make it home, but in pieces, okay. um, oh. which was horrendous, crushing, crushing. I mean, crushing. I was the one who'd gone there to take my life, yet I was the only one who came home. How is that even yes fair? So yes. I it, beyond beyond the grief though was this sense I was on high alert. So Any sound, crack, bang, snap, crackle or pop was, you know, would kind of send me into a whole other fear state. But this feeling or this sensation of being beyond human stayed with me for a long time. And what I'm very grateful for is that my mum and my dad Mm. taught me to be unbelievably self-aware and to be incredibly observant and to never take an experience or a sensation or a feeling or a thought as benign. So as I was going through this feeling over that period when I came home of feeling beyond human, I really allowed myself to surrender into it, to feel into it, to mm-hmm. see what, what what it was, who it was, because it definitely wasn't the me that went away. Wow, sure. It definitely wasn't the me that went away. The me that went away was cold and aloof. I was known as the Grim Reaper at work because my job was to fire people. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I was not, I was soft when I was at home, but in the rest of my life, no, you never wanted to cross me. I was dangerous. Mm. And, and that was very much in that era, the
3: 2000s, women well, in the workplace. Man, that was, was what we had to do to yeah. to get ahead. That was what
4: was portrayed at that time, that that Stamp was successful. You know. I was climbing that corporate ladder, yes, some yes. hell or high water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never hurt anybody to get to where I wanted, but man, my path, if you were in my way. Yeah, you did what had to you be done. Did, I did what I needed to do. There mm. was there was nothing stopping this A-type, mm. aggressively mm. assertive, mm. but unbelievably aloof so you could never get to me. Mm. And that was – I think that uh, my sister would probably be the best person to describe who I was because she's the, she would always see that side of me.
1: Mm.
4: She would always see how aloof I was yet how tough, you know. She would always. That's extraordinary because it flies mm. in the face of the person that walked in the door oh my before. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I'm nothing you know, like arms that. Arms wide
2: open mm. and mm. big long hug and mm. you know. I
4: know. I'm nothing like that now. Yeah, yeah. I'm so. I mean, I've always been soft, but I am so soft. Yeah, yeah. And the things that I care about now, you know, I mean. Jeepers. Yeah. Yep. I don't even remember the person I was pre-Bali. I have very few memories that I can actually say, oh, yeah, I actually remember doing mm. that. Mm. I can't remember who I was. Mm. It's so chalk and cheese now and I really like myself now. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. do too. I
2: like you too. Cameron. I think so. <laughs> but I,
4: if you would
3: like to hear the rest of Karen's amazing story, we'll be back in a So we've just discussed that we love the person that you are now. Yes. And so you've had the operation and you're back in Australia and you're recovering from that. Mm -hmm. So what next?
4: (laughs) (laughs) So I think that gift that I was given by my parents to be so self-aware really allowed me to discover who this new version of me is and to be really present to it so that I could know myself again. Because the me that went to Bali was not the me that came home. Yeah. And I had to figure this all out. Which is probably so grateful that you were in that state because
3: basically, as you've mentioned, you were going to Bali, you had made the decision that you would end your life. And that decision was made because somebody else whom you loved had passed away and now your gorgeous girlfriends who went with you are no longer with you. So that could have created that whole spiral to continue that plan again. But luckily you're in a state now which is, I don't even know how to explain it. I don't either. You've yeah. certainly <laughs>
2: got, well, you've certainly got uh,
4: a heightened state of self-awareness. Mm. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Self-worth. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think, you know, the the self-awareness piece really and the presence to the new version of myself that had returned, that was – it was super important for me to get to know who I was because I didn't recognise myself and that's really the truth of it. I didn't recognise who I was. I didn't recognise the way that I would respond to people or respond in situations. I didn't. It wasn't familiar to me. And it, after about six months, though, I started to re-assimilate back into normal society again and it was then that I was having conversations with people where they were reiterating to me what I'd been through <sighs> and I had kind of I, I knew what I'd been through but I didn't own it as my own. I I, I don't actually have because I don't know. I don't know what my yeah. because is. I didn't really own it as my own. I just saw it as an experience. You move on. You cut your toenails, you move on. Yes. Get your head on. It's a matter of fact yes so that happened, but next. Yeah. yeah. But then I started to assimilate what everybody was saying with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought, oh, okay, so that's how I'm supposed to feel. Right you are then. Okay, post-traumatic stress disorder, here I come. And oh, head first. Oh, gosh. it's amazing it? it's that seed that's planted? 100%. Because when we have those tragic experiences, and anybody that's listening to the show that may have gone through something, trust me, society educates us on how we handle those. If we have a personal choice, the superhuman aspect that lives within every single one of us is the one who truly decides how we handle those experiences. But because mm-hmm. society has told us if you lose somebody, you cry. Well, That's society that's told us that, yes, of course, we don't want to lose the person. Of course, we want to have the person in our lives. There's no mistake about that. But there is a system around grieving. There is a system around being cheated on. There is a system around somebody lying to you. There's a system around how to communicate. You know, like there's... I totally Mm. agree with you. Absolutely. We don't think for ourselves. so
2: on board with that. Mm. And that's
4: what we discussed earlier
3: with Byron Katie and that's part of her message, isn't it? It is what it is. Oh, her loving what
4: is for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I wish I'd found her earlier but I think she's unbelievable. I mm-hmm. think she's amazing. With And what she did was actually take what I was experiencing and give me language for it, which wow. I've been incredibly grateful for, for mm. lots of the teachers that I've, you know, encountered. But I feel like, you know, th- once, once I became – once I was handling this, the experience – the way that everybody else would have handled the experience, I lost myself. Yes. And there was a period there of about six years, and I am so grateful that it was only six years and not 16 or 60. Mm -hmm. But in that six years, I was depressed. I was crying all the time. I was a mess. I I couldn't get into a lift. I couldn't hear a champagne cork pop. The internal dialogue was prolific. I would go to bed, I'd wake up in the morning and I would tell myself how much I hated myself straight away, how depressed I was, but yet I can't take my life. You suck it up because you've already had the chance to lose it, you didn't didn't happen, so suck it up now you just got to hope for an early death. And that would be the internal dialogue for me day in day out until 6 years down the track. I saw lots of counselors and lots of support and there was one woman by the name of Diane Viola. She's a counsellor on the, on the Gold Coast and she helped me to analyse what I was doing to myself. And when I became aware mm. that I had to recreate my depression every morning in order to be depressed, mm-hmm. well, hello, mm. because when I was asleep I wasn't depressed. Yeah. I wasn't there. But the minute I woke up I had to recreate it in order for it to so be it was there. A conscious. I was totally doing it to myself. Mm. And – that made me realise that, or it made me question how many of us are doing that to ourselves, calling it depression or anxiety, and not having any other option. Of course, you know, because mm-hmm. we could all do, but be- knew better, we would do better. But how many of us are generating mm. our own depression that yeah. way, either so because it of a really ignited or, your curiosity, oh, and that's yeah. that sent me straight to uni. <laughs> oh, yeah. To study psychology and it also sent me straight to – it was 19 – no, it wasn't. It was 2008, 2007, sorry. I went and did um, all the training in the Masters of Neurolinguistic Programming. Oh, yeah. Because I wanted to know what was going on between my two years. Mm. Yep. And I went – I became a master trainer in NLP and when I did the master trainer level – it's amazing because it allows you to step outside of the being and observe. If and this, Again, words are really escaping me today. Forgive me. But it allowed me to step outside of myself and observe what was happening inside so that then I could see that I truly was doing it all to myself. Wow. Mm. And I could actually see and watch the cognitive processes taking place. And I knew why. I mean, I was innocent. I'd been blown up and my partner had committed suicide and I'd lost my two best friends. Like I had every reason why. (laughs) I mean, it made sense. Yeah. But I also realized that I was still here. So if I'm going to be here, man, you know, if I'm going to be here, be here. Yeah. Mm. Otherwise, it's all going to – what's the point of it? What's the point of having gone through what I went through? Yes. Yes. And that was when I decided that I would start to do something really profound and something really big with my experiences because Mm. it made me see that I'd been given a second chance. Yeah. And now I was lying in bed crying about how bad and sad my life was. Yes, it was. But what's the point of that when I'd been given a second chance? Yes. And I thought, you know, I've got to do something amazing, which means I've got to be amazing. And I rang my dad and my dad told me a story. He said, my dad calls me Buffy and I'm hoping that all of us can keep that between ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Secret safe with our stuff. Yeah, consider this a cone of silence. (laughs) Nice. But he said to me, Buffy, think of the humble caterpillar He thinks he's amazing because he can bulldoze over a blade of grass. He's got his belly dragging on the ground, and that's his perspective. He said, but then life happens, instinct occurs, and he starts to spin a chrysalis, and inside there, he's going through hell, and he thinks that's the worst time of his life. He said, Buffy, everybody would say you've been through hell and that being blown up and losing Greg to suicide, that's the worst time of your life. He said, I'm telling you now, it's not. He said, that is not the fight of your life. He said, the fight of your life is right today. It's right here. He said, because like that little butterfly that's transformed inside of that chrysalis, he said, he has to break free of the chrysalis. And by breaking free, he builds strength in his wings so that he can start to see the world from a completely different perspective, not with his belly dragging under the ground, but with the wind underneath his wings. And he said to me, and Buffy, no one can help him. Like, no one can help you. He said, because if anybody touches that chrysalis or cuts it, he's weak and then he can't fly. He uh-huh. said, so none of us can help you, Buffy. He said, you have to do this yourself.
2: <gasps> How
3: Whoa. profound.
4: Is my dad the best or oh, That is amazing. And, and can, he's brilliant. Has he heard that or has that yeah. just come into his mind? Like, is he? <sighs> oh, no. My dad is the master storyteller. He's the most... <gasps> creative artist, yet the most brilliant business person. My dad is in the top 2% of genius minds in the world. Oh, wow. Because to put that together yeah, oh, so it.
3: beautifully, eloquently,
4: articulately, is that the word? <laughs> it, and it was the day that everything changed. Yeah. Wow. yeah. That was the yeah. day that everything changed. Everybody had been trying to get through to me, mm. but nothing got through to me other than that. And then mm. I went, you know what? I do have to be beautiful. I have to be the most extraordinary butterfly. I can't be mediocre. I can't I can't pretend I'm not unbelievable. I can't. I can't pretend I'm mm-hmm. not the most extraordinary creature that was ever created. I can't pretend that that's not true. If I'm going to take this second chance and make it be something profound, then what goes on inside of my skin bag has to line up with the way that person or whatever it is that gave me the second chance. Yeah. They see worth in me. Mm. Whatever it is sees mm. worth in me. Mm. I have to line up to that and see the same worth. And, it, you know, it didn't take me long because I had the frame of reference from that euphoria in Bali Yes, of seeing who I truly was. And just in that six years I lost sight of it. Yeah, of course. But the minute my dad told me that story yes. and I realised I had to find myself again, it just connected me back to... The truth of who I was. But what I also remember saying to my mum when I came home from Bali is she was sitting on the bed in the hospital and I said to her mother, I said, I have seen us. I know who we are. I know who we are. And she said to me, well, who are we, darling? And I said, mother, I said, we are all angels. Everybody oh, wow. is perfect. Yes, Everybody is everything and everyone. But because we can't see our wings, we don't relate to each other that way. But mother, I have seen us. I have seen us. And it's beautiful. Oh, Wow. And, and my, that's how we should see ourselves, and we don't. And my mum, still to this day, she's 81 now, and she still to this day remembers every mm. single oh, word and recounts it yes. to me constantly of she that would. conversation because mm. it was such so a beautiful. Um, wow, did my child really see that? And so from that day to this, really, it's been a process of me. I don't have to embrace my magnificence because I know that I am that. And I don't have to compete with anybody else because I know that they are that. And the only difference sometimes is I see it and they don't. And I know who we are as humans. I know what we are. And then I also know what we're not. And we're not our thoughts. We're not our experiences. We're not our emotions. We're not our beliefs. We're not our conditioning. We're not our past. We're not any of that. In fact, we are so much more free. But because we don't know to see that in ourselves, I see that as my job to help people to see the truth about themselves and ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Uh.
2: <laughs> yes.
4: Hallelujah.
2: <laughs> so this sort of brings us more into what you're doing now, sort of the the current Karen, isn't it, where
4: I've been doing this since 2000. I started running my first event in 2009, Mm. um, 28th of October I think it was. And since then, so I run events for the general public. So mindset mastery is my big one, Mm. which is about you know helping people find that inner truth. Yep. But then I also I'm on stage on the public speaking circuit. So I think I'm still. I think I don't know. I'm guessing I'm still Australia's most experienced speaker. I delivered four thousand two hundred and twenty-three presentations as of yesterday. Wow. (laughs) Since two thousand and nine, but I'm somebody else may have taken me over. I don't know. But certainly on the female. Realms, no, Mm -hmm. I'm definitely um, one of the most experienced. I can't say I'm the best, but I'm the most experienced.
2: (laughs) I think you're the best. And that's that's one of the areas where you help people as well, don't you, with public speaking because –
4: I have done over the years, yeah, yeah. I've probably – I think there's been maybe 25,000 – 28,000 people who've come through. My program's called wow. um, Speakers Fast Track. Yeah, I've taken all of that content now and put that online. I don't run those programs live anymore, but what I do now is I do lots of one-on-one coaching with people who are really ready to up-level and we do a 12-month coaching program together. And then I also do live events like Mindset Mastery and I also speak on stage. Mm. When you say up-level, what, oh, okay, so people who are either in their business and they want to expand and they want to really stretch themselves themselves into new markets or they want to change. Mm -hmm. It's never anything to do with the product or the service that they're offering. It's got everything to do with what goes on inside of their own skin bag. And it's a one-on-one way of showing people what I learned in Bali, of what I saw in Bali, Mm -hmm. where I will typically on stage, I'm speaking for 20, 30, 50, 1,000, 2,000 people for 20 minutes with The coaching, I'm working with people twice a month, four hours over a 12-month period to show them and give them access to the larger self and, and create from there. Extraordinary. It's extraordinary and I, I live for it. I <laughs> bet. Yeah.
2: Would I live you, for I'll it. bet you do. <laughs> I'll bet you do. So I was reading an interesting interview with you where you would talk about having purpose and finding happiness. And Trish and I firmly believe that this is an important topic to discuss amongst our 50ish tribe because of the transitional nature of this stage of life. Yeah. Okay. And it can lead to a loss of purpose yeah. and feelings of unhappiness. And so you talk about happiness. Happiness as a natural state, and the distractions being the barrier to happiness. Like distractions being. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us more about that, please? High five. <laughs> she,
4: she does very good questions. <laughs> yeah. We just did a high five there.
2: I didn't get that out very well, but You did. Thank that you. That was wonderful. Thanks. So, because I'm, yeah. we, Trish and I are interested in this. Okay. Like we're, well, we're interested in everything. We're interested in everything about you. But this, this. Sort of topic within your wider realm is is really interesting to us.
4: Okay, so try this on. It, you know, if it doesn't feel like it fits, rip it off like a jumper and forget about it. But try it on and just see how it blends with the skin bag. And I refer to the skin bag oh, as the can person. Yes, say
3: I love yes. the skin bag. A skin bag. Yeah. Yeah,
4: I'm, I'm lovin- <laughs> yeah. loving the skin bag. I love the skin bag. So what if our natural state? Is happiness because if you think about it, it's the peace that we're always searching for, but never completely find. So we know that it exists, otherwise we wouldn't search for it. We're looking for it in jobs, in people, in relationships, in cars, in homes, in holidays, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm a big fan. But doesn't matter where we go looking for happiness, we may find it, but it's always temporary. Mm -hmm. And the nature of everything that is outside of ourselves is temporary. If you look at it, like the nature of a sandwich, it's temporary. It's going to go off. The nature of a relationship, it's temporary. Something's going to happen at some point and it's temporary. The nature of life in and of itself is temporary. The nature of a thought is super temporary. The nature of an emotion is super temporary. So, and the nature of a sense feeling is super temporary. Yet happiness is the one thing that we are perpetually and permanently in search of. And it's not just some of us, hands down, all of us. It's a universal searching. Mm -hmm. So for all of us to be universally searching for happiness and looking for it in all of these distractions and phones and iPads and conversations online and Facebook and Instagram and connecting and all of that, it's temporary at best, if at all. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it distracts us from the inner searching where happiness resides. Happiness is not something outside of ourselves. Happiness is something inside of ourselves that when we relinquish our tight grip on all of the things that keep us so distracted and busy, when we release our grip a little bit, it allows us the time and the mental space to go inside and find the happiness on the inside because Mm -hmm. happiness is self-generated, Happiness and love go hand in hand, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So I am a huge fan of my husband. I love him beyond words, and when I hug him, this great flood of love just comes out of every pore, and I just feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world to have been given a second number one, you know? Yeah. And I feel like he is my knight in shining armour. He's spunky. He's fabulous. So I have this great flood of feeling well up inside of me. Now, Matt is six foot tall. He rests his chin on my head and he pats me while he's working. (laughs) While I've got all this deep emotional love like flowing through my veins, he's working, you know, he's cutting something up or he's doing something and he's patting me and he's resting his chin on my head. Now, I would say Matt loves me. (laughs) But I don't know. How do I know? All I know is the feeling inside of me that I am generating. I am doing that. Mm-hmm. Matt is not doing that. Matt is like right now. I can feel all this love for Matt, but Matt is in Marichador. He's like yes, you know, mm. he's at work and he's doing his own thing. He's got no idea. Yep. So I am the generator of all of the love. I am. Ah, yes. No one else generates the love inside of my skin bag because no one else is in there. I use Matt as a key to unlock that amount of love. But if Matt leaves, does he take that with him? Hell no. No one has the ability to take away my ability to love. I have that that's in me and I generate that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. So we think that we love other people. Of course we do. And we think that they love us. And of course they do. But do I know what love feels like for Matt? I have no idea. Yeah. Mm. I know how it feels for me and I'd like to think it's the same for him, that it's just overwhelming. Yeah. (laughs)
2: You're not in his skin bag.
4: (laughs) I'm not in his skin bag. And he's not in my skin bag. Yeah, yeah. Which then means if Mm. anything should happen, would I be disappointed? Of course I would. He's taking away the key that generates that much love. But I can tell you this now. I can look at my dogs and I can generate love. Mm. I can look at a tree and I can generate the love. (laughs) I can – Look at the leaf on a tree and I can see the veins on that leaf and, man, that love can come out my eyes. It's extreme. Mm. So I am the generator of that. Nobody that is temporary, that comes and goes or any experience or anything that comes and goes has the ability to take that away from me. I have that. That's mine. Mm. Just like we all have that. Mm. We use each other as keys for sure, but it is us that does the generating. So the happiness is exactly the same. It is exactly the same. There is nothing outside of us that generates the happiness. We generate the happiness. But I take a moment to hug Matt so that I can feel that love. And I take a moment to hug a tree and I take a moment to snuggle my puppies Mm. so I feel Mm. that love because that's what's important to me. Yeah, for sure. Mm. I go after it. I live a very deliberate life in going after those sensations that I generate so when we live life randomly, because we're so distracted yep. with all this other stuff, mm. including kids—you know, kids very distracting and can't mm. not be—but you know, when we live this very distracted life, we're also not living a deliberate life. We're living a, a random life, and then we get to the end of our days, we look back and we wonder why it wasn't the way we wanted it.
2: Yep. Gosh.
4: So when yep. we live deliberately, mm. we go after the things mm. that we want and we take a moment. So I take a moment for my happiness and I take a moment to generate my love. And you know what? Here's the thing. It's just a moment. I can give Matt a hug and I can count to 6 and I'm done for the day. Mm. Yeah. Cuz I filled my Yeah. I filled my requirement. Mm. And doing different things and lots of variety and lots of change is my jam. So if I'm looking for happiness, I change the lounge room around or I change my clothes or I change my wardrobe or I change my hair. Or I change something and it makes me happy. Yeah. But I take a moment to do that and it doesn't take a day. It just takes mm. a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I have found the happiness that I've pursued that living deliberately and being self-aware has you know that actually, oh, wow, look at that feeling of love inside. I'm doing that. Mm. Oh, wow, look at that feeling of happiness. I'm doing that. That extraordinary level of self-awareness again. There it is. Yeah, yeah. And then purpose falls out of that as a natural beneficiary because when yep. you are that deliberate in your own skin bag and in your own life experience, then the universe can have its way with you. It's not blocked by distractions. and It's not blocked by beliefs of I'm not good enough and I can never do this and why me? And it's not blocked by that. And if I get a choice between running around trying to find my own purpose or fulfilling my divinely inspired purpose, I know exactly where I'm going. Mm. I'm going for divinely inspired. And when there's something there, I'm taking action. When there's nothing there, I've got a day off.
2: Yeah, great.
4: Gosh, that's profound.
3: And really resonates.
2: You say whatever we resist persists, mm. meaning if we try and push pain and suffering aside, mm. it won't magically disappear. Correct. So and is, is
3: that similar to like when people say if you don't learn the lesson, it'll keep happening in your life? Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. So what are some key practices we can employ as 50-ish women mm-hmm. to help sit with these uncomfortable
4: feelings? Oh, that's so easy. Mm. Okay, Great.
2: so. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Pen and paper ready. Oh, <laughs> ready to write notes.
4: Oh, this is the easiest one. This is the easiest one. Yep. So whenever we have pain or suffering present, it's purposeful. No for an absolute fact. It's not a mistake. So as soon as we try and resist it, push it away, pretend it's not there, ignore it then we're not getting the lesson that was designed for us. And if you think of life this way, life is a classroom and experiences are your lessons and people are your teachers. So when we have pain and when we have suffering that's caused by other people or that's caused by ourselves, it's life giving you lessons. It's creating experiences and it uses other people or situations to create those experiences. So to pretend that it shouldn't be there or ignore it or wish it away means you really, you're not paying attention to the purpose of life or the meaning of life really. And so the reason that I say that it's so easy is because all we have to do is identify the pain and identify the suffering or identify the thing that's pissing us off with the person that's pissed us off. I might be feeling angry for argument's sake. I'm feeling angry. So I'm feeling angry. All feelings and emotions are purposeful. So embrace it. Okay, thanks, anger. I'm so glad that you're there. you pain in my freckle. I think you're a butt face and I really wish you weren't there, but I get that you're there. Mm. Mm, thanks very much. I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry at so-and-so, and so i am angry at so-and-so, but really what's happening inside of the skin bag is anger. So when we recognize it and it doesn't take long, it just takes a moment. Yep. Recognize that I'm feeling angry. Then go to the direct opposite feeling of what anger is for you. So first you have to name what you're feeling, which means then you're owning it yep. and you're paying attention to it. Yep. Then go to the direct opposite of that. So for me, the direct opposite of anger, not the word, but the direct opposite feeling of anger, if I'm to do that right now in the moment, is peace. So you might come up with something completely different. Just go with whatever is there. But you've actually mm-hmm. got to let yourself feel into what is the opposite feeling of this anger I'm feeling and let your mind and your body go to that feeling. Mm-hmm. And then you can see, right, So the opposite for me is peace. So if I was to get a coin, on one side of the coin is anger, on the other side of the coin is peace. So if I resist anger, I'm also resisting peace. Yeah. So whatever we resist, make no mistake, it will persist because history continues to repeat itself until you learn the lesson. So get the lesson now. So you can move on to the next one. Yeah, and if there's no lesson, you've got a day off. <laughs> so <laughs> enjoy it. Absolutely, you're not in the classroom. <laughs> Correct. To the you're out in the quadrangle and you're yeah. having recess. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly.
2: So you're you, on the jungle gym,
4: <laughs> you can't throw out you can't throw out the anger and you can't dismiss the anger because it's there to teach you peace or me peace. And then I know, right? Thanks, anger. You are here to show me peace. That's your purpose. And I don't have a great relationship with peace. I know what it feels like because I felt it there for a second, but I don't have a great relationship with it. I've got a better relationship with anger because I get to anger easily. Yeah. So peace, yeah, it's going to take me a bit of work. Well, there you go. Now you know what you're working towards. Yep. And the anger or the suffering, whatever it is, Mm. and it could be anger, it could be sadness, it could be anything, is purposeful to teach you it's direct opposite. Yeah. We live in a world of duality. Yes, no, can, can't, cold, warm, hot yeah should shouldn't all of that so it's exactly the same with our emotions we live in a world of duality the nature of the human experience is dual so when we look at the what's on one side of the of the equation the opposite end of the equation is always the lesson so when we say we don't know why we've got it we're lying we do which is not present to it. Yeah. Got to, yeah. So let the pendulum swing from mm-hmm. anger to peace and then it might go back to anger again. But the degree to which it swings to the left is the degree to which it will swing to the right. And eventually you will build a relationship with peace and then anger won't need to be present. Okay. Mm. That is brilliant. <clears throat> Karen, I remember and I'm pretty
3: sure that it's a saying of yours from the podcast and when I heard you speak, this too will pass. Mm. And I use it all the time, and I'd love to share with you that Lily, my daughter, just finished grade twelve, oh, and how as wonderful. yeah, and as part of that process, we had to write them letters, and they had to write us letters. And during that letter, she wrote all of these lovely things. But she said, "Mum, thank you for always helping me to work out how I'm feeling." And she said, "I love that when I feel anxious, you let me feel that way, and that." I always say to myself now, this too will pass, and I know it will. So thank you for that. I'm getting a bit teary. So, yeah, it helps
4: me and and it helps her. So thank you. Oh, my love. And you know that that is such a huge thing for a parent, especially a mum, because you just want to save your kids. You want to make Mm. them feel better. You know and it's a massive task to to allow the space for your child to go through any kind of pain or any kind of suffering it's huge for you mm. to stand back and watch that but mm. not doing that invalidates her experience. Mm. So you can't tell her how to feel. You can't try and make her feel better. And it's the same for all of us. Mm. You know, we all – nobody wants to see anybody suffering. No. But just in our saying don't cry or you'll be okay or mm. maybe let's go do this or let's distract the person or let's make you feel better, it's invalidating the experience when actually – what lands up happening is the person holds on to the pain Mm. simply because they don't want to be invalidated. They're like, this is mine, back off. Mm. And then it forces them to hold on. Whereas if you allow the space for the person Mm. to experience the pain, and this is even six-year-old children, below that age I wouldn't wouldn't suggest it, but six years and on, if there's a little bit of a pain or a little bit of a suffering for the little one, Give them the space to self soothe and to figure it out for themselves without invalidating it. And that's I've so never been hard a huge a fan parent. of
2: "you'll be okay," except for your friend in Bali. The Australian Federal Police guy. What was his name? Frank. Okay, I nearly said Roger. <laughs> Trevor, Russell, <laughs> Bruce, Brian. <laughs> all good Aussie names. <laughs> now actually, do you'll be all right. you'll be I've right never left. been a fan of it because yeah. sometimes you feel like saying, well, I'm 50 and won't, I'm 50 and not okay. So 50 and stop telling me I'll be all right because <laughs> at the moment I'm not. So you're better off you know, being allowed, you know, just yeah, to, to sit Yeah, that's why that I moment. love this too. will pass and I mm-hmm. love that. And, you know, on the Up For Chat
3: podcast you ladies used to say that it was the ripple effect that yeah. changes the world. So mm-hmm. I, I've taken on that saying, Lily's taken on that saying, she's sharing it with her friends, she'll share it with her children one day potentially or, you know, it's just that constant learning and evolving mm-hmm. of how we operate. And mm-hmm. everything
4: is temporary. Yeah. Mm. It was always temporary doesn't matter what it is. Actually, the Dalai Lama said something, and I've I've always loved it. And he said, pain occurs in the instant. Suffering is our desire to hold on to it. Oh. Wow. I mean, shut the front door on that. Shut the front door. So desire to hold on to it. So you actually want to hold on to it. So we want to suffer. At first, I'm like, no way. That can't be true. But... You look at anybody that's suffering, they're telling the same story over and over and over again because they're getting a certain payoff from that. Yes. And I'm... Totally, And yeah. I know oh, because yeah. I did it for so long. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, I think, and honestly, purposely. if
3: everyone looks and is brutally honest with yeah. themselves, they can see the glimmer of truth in that. They can yes. see, not even a glimmer, you can see the truth in it.
2: Yeah. It's like yeah.
3: staring it's like you straight in the face. Isn't it. Isn't it? It's kind of saying, hang on, yes. I need attention. Yeah. I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm this, I'm that. But it's really saying I need attention, I need care. But you need to
4: do that for yourself. Oh, well, absolutely. And in a perfect world, everybody would know that mm. Mm. and we would then all give each other the space to be able to do that for ourselves but that's not the way that the world is no. you know the way that the world is is we all try and help each other and we all try and save each other and we all try and rescue each other because we care yes you know yeah, and and it's and it's a beautiful thing that we we love to love as much as we do yeah yeah mm. sure we
3: could clearly talk to you forever <laughs> and yes well i intend to now <laughs> <laughs> um, but unfortunately, we need to keep to some sort of time restraint.
2: And you're busy as well. Yeah, we You've, need, got, you've yeah, got places we're to we're be. So we could have you in this studio.
3: We've locked the door. and We're not letting <laughs> <Yeah>. wrap. <up. laughs> but it's time for our wrap up question. And if you could go back in time, what advice
4: would the 50-ish Karen give to your 20-ish self? Oh, gosh, my 20-year-old self was just a mess. The advice I would give to her is stop trying so hard. You will get there anyway, and stop competing with everybody because no one cares that much <laughs>
2: <laughs> about yeah.
4: what you're doing. It's yeah. so true, isn't it? Yeah. At that stage of our lives, we are,
2: yeah. yeah, I agree. We are very, I mean, we're hard on ourselves now.
4: We're brutal,
2: and I think back then
3: it's that comparisonitis. Back then, we haven't learned that comparison is a thief of all joy at that stage of our life. We have
2: not learned that. Mm. We have not, because no one said it.
3: No, but we've learnt it now. But we still fall victim to it at times.
2: We do, but we. I think we're a little bit better at catching it. Yes. We're going to catch it. And then we're going to catch the coin now. We're going to catch it and flip the coin. I like what you just said. Mm. Mm. Karen, what a joy it's been to have you in here today chatting Mm. about your extraordinary experiences in life. And I had a good mooch around your website yesterday. (laughs) Linda loves a good mooch. (laughs) I do love a good mooch. So, I mean, you're doing all sorts of incredible things out there. So, um, we're going to have um, links to your website and any. Anything else we we can get our hands on, yes. it'll be in our show notes. Just and so I'll that put our, on our socials
3: as well yeah. can
2: access you. So that's it from us today. If you'd like to find out more about today's amazing guest, Karen Smith, as I just said, we will put links to her website and socials on our show notes. So don't forget, you can follow us on Instagram at don't give a fifty and email us at hello at don't fifty And if you've got a moment, leave us or send in a review or suggestions of topics you would like to know more about. And share, share, share our podcast with your friends. Also. Also, go and check out our website www.dontgivea50.com.au. Leave <laughs> us a message, sign up to be part of our 50ish tribe. We
3: don't actually know what being part of our 50ish tribe means, but please sign up anyway. Sign up anyway, Something and we'll good get there. Will come.
2: We promise we will get there. Remember, gorgeous 50ishes, life is for living, so don't give a 50 because we're all 50 and awesome, regardless of age. And living and aging is an absolute privilege, and just being awesome is our right. Yes, and remember, name it.
3: Own it, flip it, the direct opposite. That's the good takeaway. Thank you, gorgeous Karen. Plus, everything else. You're so so amazing. I'm so honoured to have you here and to share your amazing story. Extraordinary. So generously. Thank you. You're
4: so welcome. You're incredible.